0: Every day, the giant would walk to the middle of the valley. You have the Philistines on one side, and you have the Israelites on the other. And this giant, who stood nine feet tall, was the greatest killing machine that maybe the world had ever seen at that moment. Would issue a challenge, like, who's going to come and fight me? And everybody knew what the rules were. Whoever would take on the giant, it was a winner-take-all scenario. That if the Philistines win, well, the Israelites are conquered. But if the Israelites win, the Philistines are toast. But he was nine feet. Who's going to take him? So every day he would walk to the middle of the valley. He would issue the challenge, who's going to fight me? And every day the Israelite side stayed silent. Now eventually the giant Goliath would start to play with him. He would walk out, he would issue his challenge knowing that nobody would ever come from the other side. And he would start saying things about about their nation. About their God. I'm sure he probably said a few things about their moms too. Like, I just, he would go out there and say, Who is going to take me on? And then, out of nowhere, a teenage boy says, I'll do it. And without any armor to protect him or a shield to hold in his arms, he takes off in a dead sprint towards the giant. And he pulls a rock out of his pack, he puts it in a sling, and he flings it at the giant. It hits him dead in the middle of the eyes, and he, he tumbles. But now, is he dead? We don't know. Is he just stunned? Who knows? Is he, is he going to get up in just a second? Still, nobody's really sure. But David, this young teenage boy, he keeps running. And without even a sword on his own body, he gets to the giant, and he pulls the giant sword out of its sheath, and he chops off his head. Now, immediately, immediately, what looked like it was certain doom for the Israelites, like, Who's going to beat the nine-foot giant, this teenage boy with just a sling and a few rocks? Immediately, it's a reversal of fortune. The Philistines, they see what's happened, and they start to scramble. And they pick up, and they start running in the opposite direction. The Israelites now rejuvenated. That, man, we have a shot at this. They grab their swords, and they take off after them. And it actually said, all the way from the Valley of Elah to the Philistine capital of Gath, the dead and the wounded of the Philistines littered its path. All because of this teenage boy named David. And immediately, David becomes a rock star in Israel. Like, everywhere he goes, people know him. They know his name. Part of his winnings from from beating the giant was that he got to marry the princess. Like, the king's daughter was going to be his in marriage. He becomes best friends with the king's son, Jonathan. And every single city that the royal procession walks into... Like, people would, would see that the king and his family were walking in the town, and I'm telling you, like, it became a scene to behold. And eventually, like, the women would get down onto the parade route, and they would sing, start to sing the song, and it was so short and it was so catchy that everybody learned it within a matter of seconds. And it started off like this, Saul, who was the king, he has killed his thousands. And if you're Saul, that's like, like that's a pretty cool compliment. Like, the women are singing your name. They're saying, like, hey, you've you've killed your... That's that's like the modern equivalent, like, when, you know, like, Jay-Z drops, like, LeBron's name, like, in a verse, like, you know, like, that's a big deal. Like, the women are all singing, the whole crowd is singing, like, Saul has killed his thousands. But then the next line would come out, and it would completely and totally rock Saul. But David, his ten thousands. Suddenly, thousands doesn't sound like a lot when David is killing 10,000s. Saul kills his thousands, but David is 10,000s. Now, it was mildly annoying at first for the king. Like, I'm sure it bothered him to hear it. But the thing is, like, it just never died. Like, people kept singing it. And no matter where they went, no matter where the royal line would go, like, where the royal procession would head to, it seemed like that song seemed to follow him. Saul has killed his thousands. David, his 10,000s. And this, this little voice starts to whisper into, into Saul's ears. Are you going to stand for this? Are you going to let people say that about you? That you're inferior to one of your own warriors? You're inferior to your, to your son-in-law? Saul has killed his thousands, but David is ten thousands. And eventually this jealousy starts to just build up inside of Saul. And what starts with maybe like a... Like passive-aggressive comments, it turns into one day when David is playing the harp for him, he just impulsively grabs a spear and he throws it. And it lands right above David's head and he runs out of the room. And Jonathan, David's best friend, and Michelle, his wife, have to talk their dad down. So Saul starts trying something different. He tries this passive-aggressive approach. He's like, I'm the king. I can do what I want. And so he would send David into battle, hoping that he would get overtaken, that David would lose, and his problem would be behind him. But it's like no matter how hard he tried, David would go into battle, and despite how many people were on his side, and despite how many people were on the opposite side, David would come out triumphant and become more popular and more powerful in the process. And eventually it just becomes too much for Saul. He can't take it anymore. He hears that song day in and day out. Saul's killed his thousands, but David is 10,000. Saul's killed his thousands, David is 10,000. Saul's killed his thousands, David is 10,000. And it finally becomes too much for him. And so, what starts as an impulsive throw of the spear and moves into a passive aggressive, hoping that somebody else will take care of his problem, eventually turns into this all out war on David. David hears what's happening. And he runs away. He runs away from his friends. He runs away from his wife. He runs into the wilderness. Over time, there's 600 other disenfranchised warriors that have been part of the army that that Saul's jealous eye had kind of pushed away. They all come and they join alongside David, but the king is still in hot pursuit. So one day, while they're in the wilderness, one of David's scouts comes running to him. It says, David, we have to go now. Saul is coming with an army. He's coming to get us. So David and his 600 men, they scatter. They all go into different directions. And David and just a handful of his men wander into a cave in the middle of the Middle Eastern desert and that's where we pick up today in 1 Samuel chapter 24, verses 1 through 3. If you'd like to follow along, you can open your Bible right to the middle, start going to the left. This is an Old Testament book. It's the 1 Samuel book. Um, if you want to follow along on your, on your phone, you can scroll down to the, uh, the, the, the top third of the books. You'll, you'll see it there. Or we always have it on the screen as well. Um, but this is, this is the account. It says, After Saul returned from fighting the Philistines, he was told, he was told that David has gone to the wilderness of En Gedi. So Saul chose 300 elite troops from all Israel and went to search for David and his men near the rocks of the wild goats. And at the place where the road passes some sheepfolds, Saul went to a cave to relieve himself. But as it happened, David and his men were hiding farther back in that very cave. Okay, just like, let's state the obvious here. Um, In the fugitive world, this is like hitting the powerball. okay? You know, you've got, uh, you know, You've got the king and, you know, we'll get to that in a second. But also in the immature pastor world, like this is also like hitting the power ball because how often do I get to talk about somebody going to the bathroom on a Sunday, right? Like this is going to be pretty fun for all of us. Um, So what happens is you have David and his army of 600. That's like nothing to sneeze at, all right? These are finely trained men. But you have Saul coming with 3,000. Here's the message that's being sent this day. This is ending right now. For every man that David has, Saul has five. You are not making it out of the wilderness alive, David. I have come to stop this. But then suddenly, as it happened, what are the odds? What are the odds that the king, as he's brought his army into the wilderness, the one moment where he's left his protection, he wanders into the very cave that you're hiding in, And in his most vulnerable position, is sitting there, ready to be killed. Like, what are the odds that this happened? But as it happened, David has a choice to make. What am I going to do? Now, the part of the story that I didn't get a chance to share earlier, was that several years before this, before David was ever on the run, before he'd ever married the princess, before he'd ever even killed Goliath, Saul had done something that was so egregious, he had violated God's command so strongly that the prophet, Samuel, had to go to him and say, you know, your, your kingly line, your, your royal line, it's going to end with you. That when you are done, you are done. Your son won't be king, his son won't be king. It, it's going to stop with you. And then that same prophet wanders over to David's family and actually anoints David as the future king, unbeknownst to Saul. And for years now, David has been living with this knowledge. I am someday going to be king. That it's going to happen that God himself has said that I will be the next king of all of Israel. And in the process of this knowledge, he finds out that the king is now jealous of him and trying to kill him. And as it happened... The king has wandered into your very cave where you are hiding. Now, is this God's deliverance? Is this, is this God's gift to David to like right the injustice that, that he's been living in? Is this the answer to all of his problems? See, what happens, sometimes that same temptation falls on us, doesn't it? We're in one of those as-it-happened moments. And what it feels like is that we have an opportunity to make a decision and to do something that if we were just like thinking normally, like if we were away from the chance circumstance of it, we say, I I would not do that. And what we do is we sometimes say that my wrong decision is now justified by God. That it just seems like everything has lined itself up for me to say yes, even though under normal circumstances, I would probably say no. That I would normally have second thoughts, but today... As it happens, everything just seems perfect for it. Okay, you might be wondering, though, like, why would it be wrong for David to kill the king? Like, why, why would this be wrong? Like, couldn't he just, like, frame this as self-defense? Okay, I, I believe strongly that David had two very, very strong convictions about why he chose not to try and kill the king. The first is just this. It's like, you shouldn't murder, all right? Like, that's it's part of the top ten. You know, something that David would have definitely known, that, like, outside of a battle situation... Like, you're not supposed to take innocent life. You're not supposed to take life at all. Like, I'm sure that's floating around in the back of his mind. The second thing, and this is probably even more of a significance inside this this story, is I believe that that David had a strong conviction that God is ultimately the one who chooses the king. See, there is this term that they use, the anointing of God. And I believe that based on this story, as well as based on many other examples in David's life, where it would be really easy to shortcut the process, or where it would be really easy for him to to do something different. That David had a conviction. God's the one who chooses the king. And as long as Saul is in his position, as long as as God has put his hand of, of favor on Saul's life, as long as he's still wearing the crown, it's not my choice. That I can't just step in and take the place of God. But like that's how you think when you know Saul is back in the palace and you are on the run and you feel completely powerless to do anything about it. And this is not one of those situations, because as it happened, the king has left his protection. He's in the cave, completely exposed, completely vulnerable. No protection at all. As it happened. Warring inside of David is this battle between something that he thinks is wrong and the answer to all of his problems. Let me submit this to you today. What does it say about David if he chooses to do something that that he believes is morally wrong in that moment. What does that say about him? Now, I'm going to make this statement right here, and it might bristle something inside of you. It might might kick back on something, but just bear with me. I want to try and explain this out. I believe that every wrong decision that, that David makes and every wrong decision that I make or that you make is an admission that we don't fully trust God with something. Let me say it again. Every wrong decision that we make is an admission that we don't really trust God with something. But doesn't it feel like more than that sometimes? You know, like, like I think that you want to trust God. That's probably why you're here this morning. And um, but as you as you do in a diagnostic of just the decisions and the choices that you've made in life, you're probably thinking, like, I've made wrong decisions, but no, that, that wasn't because like I didn't I didn't actually trust him. I I just I just did it, like, right? Like this it just came out of me. I I, I don't know why, I just, I just, I just did it. Like, I know I shouldn't watch this, but 20 minutes later, like, I did. Or, I know I shouldn't say this, but the horse just, it just, like, fell out of my mouth. It just, I know I shouldn't think this, but it just, it just popped in my head. I believe that every wrong decision that we make is a mission that we don't fully trust God in something. That we believe that he's not going to be enough for us, so I, I need to take some action. That... That God's plan, that's, that's not really something that's ultimately going to help me. I, I need to do something. But sometimes it doesn't feel that way because it doesn't always feel like we are in control of ourselves. Who is in control of you? Every wrong decision is an admission that we don't fully trust God in something. Okay, so let me, let me explain this and, and see if this makes sense for a second. Uh, when I was in college, I had a job um, working overnights at a gas station for a while. And um, it, was, uh, it was a really fun job. I, I can tell about that later. But here's something that, that I, did not, I did not expect. Um, despite the fact that I had unlimited access to, like, the, the soda fountain, and despite the fact that I had unlimited access to gas station hot dogs, um, I found that after a couple months, my clothes weren't fitting. And um, it, it didn't happen in the direction that, that you think. I'd actually lost, like, 15 to 20 pounds. And I'm like, how is this... How is this happening? Like, what, what is going on? Like, was I that lazy before that, like, any, any moderate movement is just, like, I'm, the weight's just falling off of me? No, no, here's actually what happened, was that for 21 years, I had the same routine. Between 6 and 8 o'clock every morning, I would eat a meal. Somewhere between, like, 11.30 and 1.30, I would eat another one. And then somewhere between 5 and 7 p.m., I would eat another meal. Like, I ate the three meals that all of us probably eat every single day. For 21 years, it would happen like clockwork every single day. Well, suddenly, I'm sleeping through these normal, like, meal times, And when I would wake up, I wouldn't really be that hungry, and so I might eat a little bit, but, like, I, I just felt fine, so I just, I just kind of kept going. And I would be asleep during breakfast, lunch, and dinner almost, almost every single day. And here's what I learned about myself during the season. is that around noon, around lunchtime every day when it would feel like I was so hungry and that my reserves had been depleted and that I just needed something, I needed some energy to keep going with the day, I would go and I would eat a meal. But here's what I learned about myself, is that my cravings, my appetite for food, had just as much to do with habit and reflex as it did with actually needing sustenance. Let that sink in for a second, like... What I learned about myself was that the meals that I would eat, it was just as much about habit and reflex as it was actually needing the food. Like sometimes I was eating just because like that's what you do every single day at the same time. And my body was used to it. And when suddenly I was sleeping through those times, I would wake up and I wouldn't be hungry. My appetite was just as much about habit and routine as it was anything else. And here is what this teaches us about ourselves sometimes. Is every now and then we're in one of those situations where it just feels like as it happened, everything is lined up for me to make this wrong decision. And then so many situations when we find ourselves just habitually and reflexively choosing to do the wrong thing and we don't understand, like, how could this ever possibly have happened? What it's saying is that our feeling of mistrust of God to actually come in and give us what we need to feel fulfillment, to feel like we're in control, to feel like we have what it takes. Those feelings are so strong that they are at the habit and the reflex level, whether, you're, whether your brain wants you to believe that or not. And I believe that the inability to control our habits and our reflexes is a heart disease. See, since the middle of September, we've been in this series, Heart for Home, And what we've been doing is exploring this list that one of the early church leaders, a guy named Paul, had written to the church in Galatia. Where he said, if if you really follow God, your life is going to be marked by these attributes. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And today, we're talking about this final attribute. Self-control. You know, like, interesting enough, doesn't it sometimes feel like the big decisions in life can almost be easier to make than some of the small ones like I mean here just case in point I've never been walking down the street and seen a car that I really like and had to struggle with whether or not to steal it okay like there's a lot of things I struggle with but like Grand Theft Auto has like not been one of those things and why is that because it's a novel problem you might be different I get that we all come from different you know positions in life but like I've never had to struggle with like should I steal the car or not even though if I did the ramifications would be great You know what I struggle with every day? Do I say it or not say it? Do I think it or not think it? Do I look or do I look away? Like, those are the types of things I struggle with, and those feel like small decisions. The big ones, sometimes those can feel easy. It's the small ones that seem to just, like, fight at us, and it feels more like a habit or a reflex. And what makes it even worse is, like, what what do you do when you're in those as-it-happened moments? Because there's a lot of things I know I shouldn't do, but I do them anyway. And it's not always because I go out looking for it. Sometimes it's because it seems to find me. As it happened, it's really easy to say yes right now. Yeah, You know, a thousand years after David, the same guy that I was talking about a second ago, Paul, he wrote another letter to the church in Rome. And he actually says this, and maybe you can relate to this. This is Romans 7, 18b through 19. It says, I want to do what is right. We all get that, right? We want to do the right thing. We don't want to do the wrong thing. But I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. Let me just, everybody take a deep breath for a second. A guy who wrote the Bible, just put that in here, okay? So like, if he struggles with this, I know that you struggle with it. I know I struggle with this. I know what's right. I know the right decision, but I don't always do it. I know the wrong decision, and oftentimes I find myself falling right into it. What do you do in those as-it-happened moments. Let me put it in a different way. And um, for anybody that's like around my age, this, this probably will connect. Um, one of my favorite movies as a kid was The Sandlot. And uh, there is a scene where, you know, the whole baseball gang is down at the pool. And they all had a crush on Wendy Peppercorn. And Wendy Peppercorn was the teenage lifeguard. And she would sit there on her lifeguard tower. And the, the boys were just enthralled. And so one day, Squints has just like, He's finally had enough, and I, I just love it, because he says, my entire adult life, I've been coming here every summer, and there she is, oiling, lotioning, lotioning, oiling, until eventually he just throws his up and says, I can't take this no more, and he gets up out of the pool, and even though he can't swim, he jumps right into the deep end, hoping that Wendy Peppercorn will swoop down, pick him up, and give him mouth to mouth, and um, She does, which is pretty neat for squints. But some of you, some of you have been there, right? Where like, you're just, I can't take this no more. I just don't feel like I can control it. What do I do? Every wrong decision is an admission that we don't fully trust God with something. Even in those, I can't take this, no more moments. Those as it happened situations, You know, in the book, The Power of Habit, they they talk about an exercise that they did um, that I feel like is is really, really important for us to understand. So what they did is they had had two groups of kids. The control group, um, they would just send the kids into a room. They would hand them a math test. They would take the math test, and then the kids would leave. But in the variable group, they would put the kid in the room, and they would put a plate of cookies in the center of the table. And they would tell the kid, Hey, um, don't eat the cookies. And then they would wait a bit of time, and they'd walk back in and they'd hand them a math test. And here's what they learned. Some of those kids, they just broke down and just took a cookie anyway. Like they're just, I know somebody's watching, uh, but I'm, gonna eat, I'm eating the cookie. So some of the kids just ate the cookie anyway. Some of the kids, they fought against it, and they didn't eat the cookie. But the results were, inconclu- or the results were conclusive. Every single kid in the variable group did worse on the math test than the ones who, who didn't have the temptation to eat the cookie in the middle of the table. And why is that? See, sometimes we view our self control like it's a wall, that I just need to build up a wall. But the reality is, our self control is a lot more like a muscle. Like it can be depleted. That's one of the reasons why some of you have made the worst decisions in your life when you're tired, when you're exhausted, you're fatigued, you're inebriated. And why is that? It's because our self control is not a wall, it's a muscle. You can wear it down. And so whether you're a Jesus follower or not, whether you're just here because you're just checking this whole church and God thing out, or whether you really want to like honor God with your life, um, I'm going to guess that most of you want to have some self-control in your life that most of you you want to be able to you know feel like you, you have a handle on you and whether it's whether you struggle with something big or whether you, you know, struggle with something small, whether it's like you know should I, should I continually you know cheat and steal from my boss or whether it's just should I eat the sweets or not? Like, I'm assuming that most of you, you want to be in control of your life at some level. And so if you're just looking for some practical advice of, like, things that you can do to maybe get a better control on the muscle of self-control, um, these are three things you can do. First, just admit you have a problem. In the Bible, we frame this as, you know, confession. And there's a lot of power when you confess a struggle to somebody else. It's, it's, bringing, it's bringing your struggle out of the dark and putting it in the light. and God can, you know, God's going to use that. And even if you don't follow Jesus, just Having somebody else on the journey with you will help you in that. Uh, a second thing you can always do is just limit your opportunities to give in. You know, like, like let's, just, let's just take one real practical. If you're somebody that struggles with, you know, maybe an addiction to pornography, you don't need, like, a smartphone, right? Like, you don't need to have an internet and a screen in your pocket all the time. And even if you think, well, I need one for work. You don't have to take it with you into like, secluded areas. Like, you can leave it at your job. You can leave it in your car. You can put it in a different part of the house. You, know, you limit your exposure. It's, just, it's the whole principle of you know, if you want to eat better, don't buy sweets, right? Like that's it's just, you know, you don't go to Pizza Hut and you know, to their all-you-can-eat buffet and expect to like lose weight. Like you limit your opportunities. Like if that's, that's what you want to do. Um, the third thing you can do is just you replace a destructive habit with another. You know, and some people say this is one of the reasons why AA has been so successful in helping, you know, alcoholics overcome addiction. is because you're able to override the habit and the reflex of wanting alcohol with the habit and the reflex of doing step work and going to meetings. And you can do the same thing. You, you just, you pick a new thing. Maybe it's exercise. Maybe it's prayer. Maybe it's Bible study. What are you going to do, if you just want to grow your muscle of self-control... You do those three things, I promise you, you will get better in that area. If you admit you have a problem, you limit your opportunities to give in, and you replace that destructive habit with another. But I'm going to tell you, there are wisdom in these things. They will help you. And there's verses for each and every one of them. But there's a supernatural element to this as well. See, otherwise, God wouldn't need to produce this inside of us. The promise in Galatians 5, where we even get the whole topic of our series, is that God will produce these things inside of you. So no matter how much you strengthen that muscle, no matter how hard you try to limit your opportunities and you confess it to other people, every single one of you is someday going to end up in one of those as-it-happened moments. we are going to wonder, what do I do? It just seems like everything is lined up. I can make the right decision, which I think is right, or I can give the wrong decision, which would be so easy and it might solve all my problems. what do I do in these as it happened moments where it just feels like it's easier to give in might even make logical sense in the moment well here's what happens in David's story it says in verse 4 now's your opportunity David's men whispered to him today the Lord is telling you I'm certainly going to put your enemy into your power to do with as you wish so David David his boys are like whispering this into his ear. The conspiracy doesn't even have to leave the cave. I mean, God has promised him he's going to be king. Like, maybe this is the way he's going to do it. Maybe, maybe this is the plan that God had all along, right? Like, okay, I know it says don't, I know it says don't murder. And like, this is, this is an unarmed man. I know, I know that I believe strongly that God chooses the king and like any fear i had that if i killed the king today that that i'd always have to be looking over my shoulder cuz somebody else might be trying to kill me like it doesn't have to leave this room like the other seven guys that are in here they they're not going to tell anybody right like maybe this is maybe this is what i'm supposed to do his friends are encouraging him to do it he's got he's got the cheerleading section going on and david creeps forward I mean, why wouldn't he do this? I mean, he... As a, as a warrior, like... He had felt what it was like for his blade to go into another man many other times. It's not like his nerves are going to take over in this moment. He's got the image. He's got every single time that he wanted to go to, to home but he couldn't all the battles he had he had fought for the king probably going through his head his wife that he doesn't even get to spend his nights with living off distant in the palace while he's there on the run it just feels like as it happened everything is perfect right here and right now so he creeps forward he's got his knife in his hand he sees the king, and the king is completely unaware. And so what's happening? He creased forward. Something starts, like, tugging on him. No, no, it wasn't something physical. It wasn't, like, one of the guys, who, like, trying to hold him back and speak logic and reason to him. No, it wasn't that, because they were all for this. They were all tired of living on the lamb too. No, something on the inside starts to, like, pull at him. He gets up there, and he has this knife in his hand, and I'm, I just imagine, like, he's, he's ready to, like, drive it into the king when suddenly he feels this overwhelming fear kind of overcome him. And so instead, he grabs the king's robe, and he cuts off a piece of it. And it says this in verse 5 of 1 Samuel 24, it says, but then David's conscience began bothering him because he had cut off some of Saul's robe, So even then, he's feeling a little weird about doing this. I'm just going to tell you right now, there's going to come a day where you're in one of those as it happened moments where it's really, really easy to give in. It might even feel like that was the right decision to begin with. It's going to solve all of your problems. But there's going to be that little voice just like yelling at you in the back of your ear. Are you sure? This is what you really want to do. And when you're in those moments, I want to plant a seed that I hope will start to grow, and you're going to remember in one of those moments, and it's this. You need to pay attention to the tension. You need to pay attention to the tension. What did it say in Romans? I know the right thing to do, but I don't always do it. I know the wrong thing to do, but I find myself doing it anyway. And I'm just going to guess that most of us are in a situation, most of the time, that we know the right decision to make. And we feel that tension inside of us. Like, have you ever avoided asking somebody for advice because you just knew what they were going to tell you? Like, why, why is that? It's because you already feel that tension. Pay attention to the tension. And I just want to encourage you with this, too. There's never a moment where it's too late to Stop. I don't know what you struggle with. I don't know what your as it happened moment is, but there's never a point where it's just it's you're too far gone, where it's too late. There's there's rarely a point where we can at least make it somewhat better. Like even if you've already acted on the temptation. Like even confessing it and like asking for forgiveness before you get caught will make your situation better, won't it? How many of you have ever caught somebody and you have to confront them, and then they apologize. And like, do you, do you trust that apology as much as when they come to you unsolicited and say, I just need to let you know this is something that happened. Please forgive me. Like, We all understand this, but many of us, we play these mental gymnastics in our minds where we make the mistake and we don't just stop and say, what route of escape do I still have? Pay attention to the tension. David's conscience was kicking at him. For us, the Holy Spirit will kick at us. It says this in verse 6. It said, he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this to my Lord, the king. I shouldn't attack the Lord's anointed one, for the Lord himself has chosen him. So David restrained his men and did not let them kill Saul. After Saul had left the cave and got on his way. And I would love to tell you that after that moment, David ran out of the cave and started yelling to the king, and said, look what I had the possibility to do. I could have killed you just now. Holding up a, a part of his robe and just letting him know that this is happening. And I wish I could tell you that Saul saw this and said, oh my goodness, what am I doing? Like, bro, get in here. Let's hug it out. Like, I wish I could tell you that, that that's what happened. And frankly, the first half of that did. David ran out into the, out of the cave and he told the king, I had the possibility to kill you. I had the potential to, but I didn't because I believe that you're anointed by God and I believe that I shouldn't be doing this to the king to the Lord's anointed and then David went on and continued living off of the land on the run as a fugitive but I believe that David realized something that completely changed his thinking and if you're really honest with that voice when it starts to kick at you you know this too even when you play with the game of man, it just feels like everything's lined up to say yes. For David, it's better to live at peace with God as a fugitive than to live as a king with a soiled conscience. Yeah, killing the king right there would have solved this problem, but he would have spent every night from then on struggling with the knowledge that he did this. It's better. It's better to live as a fugitive than to live as a king but have your, your conscience soiled. See, self-control, it feels limiting because you don't just get to indulge in whatever behavior that you want to, every desire that you have. I understand that. I, but I also want to make the case that it, it's really more freeing in the long run, isn't it? See, because every bad decision that you make, it comes at a cost, whether it's relational, whether it's, uh, it's, it's spiritual, maybe even financial. And every time you make a wrong decision, it's like you're taking a withdrawal. And eventually you take enough withdrawals, you will end up bankrupt. But having that self-control to say, no, I'm not going to do that, it gives you options. It gives you options for your future. It gives you options in your life. And you know this is true, but sometimes it just feels... Too much. I'm in one of those as-it-happened moments. But did you know you actually have an advantage over David? See, David lived a 1,000 years before Jesus ever walked the planet. In fact, Paul, who wrote that letter to the Romans, he says this in verses 24 through 25. I just want you to see the advantage that we have in this area of self-control that David didn't even have. It says, Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. So you see how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law, but because of my sinful nature, I am a slave to sin. But here is the answer. It's in Jesus. You don't have self-control, but he does. And that even when I fail and I still choose to do the wrong thing... I can still live at peace knowing that he has forgiven me even for that. And that if I still continue to walk alongside him, he will grow this area. He will grow me to be more in control of myself. So even when I'm in those as-it-happened moments, I can say no. I don't have to do it. It's not just that he's paid for it. He also gave us the example. On Jesus' final night, he's been betrayed like one of his inner circle, a guy, one of, part of the 12, he's turned him over to the Romans. And as he's being handcuffed, one of his other disciples, a guy named Peter, grabs a sword and he starts swinging. And so much so, he actually chops a dude's ear off. And in that moment, it was an as-it-happened moment for Jesus. Because if with just one word, he could have leveled the entire garrison. But instead of, instead of wiping everybody out and making it easy for him to escape the imminent pain and betrayal, and death. He had enough self-control to let himself get shackled. And then as he's beaten, and he's bruised, and he's put on the cross, and they drive the nails into his hands, and they lift him up. And he's now suffocating under his own weight. And he's looking down, and he sees this entire crowd standing at the foot of his cross, like jeering him, and cheering along for his pain and for his suffering. Instead of instead of giving into an as-it-happened moment to speak a curse over every single one of them, he says, Father, forgive them. I'm just going to tell you right now, you don't have what it takes. You don't. You can confess it. You can limit your opportunities. You can override the habit and the reflex with something bigger. But eventually you're going to end up in one of these as-it-happened moments. And your conscience is going to kick at you It's going to make logical sense, and in your own power, you will not be able to say no. But with the power of Jesus and the Holy Spirit working inside of your life, he can produce a self-control that even when it makes sense, even when it feels right, even when you can justify it in your head, you can pay attention to the tension and say no. But the answer is not by looking in. By looking up. The answer is in Jesus. Hey, let's pray. God, we trust. We trust you. God, I trust that even when my strength fails and I justify my bad behavior and my lack of self-control, with you know, I just I can't do anything about this, it's just I'm not in control. That God, I thank you for, for your forgiveness. I thank you that you forgive me in those moments. But also, God, I thank you for your Holy Spirit working on the inside of me to try and produce that kind of self-control that limits those opportunities, that limits my destructive behavior. And God, I want to pray for the people in this room right now, that God, I know that there are people in here that say, I don't feel like I'm in control of me. And one of the major reasons why is that they've never said yes to you. So God, I'm praying right now that you would put this prayer on their hearts and on their lips, that they would, where they're sitting right now, just silently pray to you, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for my lack of self-control. I'm sorry for my, for my sin, the wrong decisions that I make. God, I'm, I'm asking you right now to forgive me of my sins, take full control of my life, and start to produce these attributes inside of me. That God, you'd make me more loving, more joyful, more peaceful, more patient, more gentle. You'd make me good. God, you'd make me faithful. And God, I'm asking you'd give me some self control. God, I pray for those in this room who'd say, I've been following Jesus, but I just feel like I can't get a handle on this in my life. God, I'm asking you would do the miracle, that you would produce the self control. God, that you would free us up. That when we go to bed and we feel that guilt and that shame, that you remind us you've removed our shame as far as the east is from the west. That if we have put our faith and our trust in you, that you have forgiven us and there's nothing that we can do to lose it. And God, I pray that you would produce self-control in us. That when we want to say no, but our heart doesn't let us because we just lack that control, that God, your Holy Spirit would produce the ability to actually stand firm in that, that you would put our belief into action follow you. Say so God, we pray this all your son, Jesus' name, amen. Hey, at this time, I want to invite our ushers to the front as we uh, pre- prepare to receive our, our offering. Um, every single week, we, we have a time of generosity in our service. And uh, here's the reason for it is that we exist based on the donations of, of faithful people just like you. And if this is your very first time here and you don't consider Crosspoint your home, you're under no obligation to give. Uh, we want you to know that uh, that uh, that we're just happy that you're here and you just feel free to sit back and relax and enjoy today. Um, and uh, for those of you who are regular tenders and here, uh, you see we have our ways to give up on the screen. Uh, you can either do it online, and I highly, uh, I highly recommend automating your giving. Uh, it's just a way that you can uh, show how important you believe it is. Uh, you can also uh, we have a new way to give by texting. And if you just text um, CrossPoint VC to seven seven nine seven seven, we'll text you back, and you can set it up right there. It's kind of a neat thing. And then as well as you can always give. Um, right here in the service by using the envelope you'll find right in the middle of your program um and that is a, a postage page envelope so even if you want to go home and think about it um throw it in the mail the next day and uh, we'll take care of the rest but CrossPoint, i love you i appreciate just your generosity and i'm praying for your self-control as well so um hey we're gonna stand and sing in a moment and thank you for your generosity